The central theme of Matthew is Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, brings salvation history to its climax, saving his people from their sins, according to Strauss. Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, brings salvation history to its climax, saving his people from their sins. The biblical scholar Gramacchi describes Matthew, the person, So we're talking about Matthew the book, which has that theme. Now let's talk about Matthew the person. He calls him a customs house officer. So think about a government official who works in the office. If you're from another country, think about the consulate, the office where like you have to go to get your legal documents taken care of. Grimacki describes Matthew as a customs house officer whose responsibility was to collect tolls that were levied on merchandise carried by caravans through his district. So imagine the truck loads, the horse loads, the camel loads, the train loads of stuff coming through his town, and he's responsible to collect the money for Rome. His position, the quote goes on, his position alienated him from the great majority of the Jewish people who regarded publicans as apostate traitors. And then they treated them as sinful outcasts. These uh, publicans, these tax collectors, were famous for adding extra taxes on top of what they were supposed to be receiving. And then they would pocket the extra. So when you consider the author's background, it's interesting enough, but when you consider the author's background and look at today's text, it's even more remarkable because tax collectors were not known for their generosity. Yet in his conversion to Christianity, a new relationship both to money and to others had begun. Now, That being said, neither in this passage nor in the New Testament will we find a full-scale treatment on how to establish and manage a national economy. We will also not find a full-fledged course in politics, philosophy, and economics. For the mission of the Bible is not those things. The mission of the Bible is not primarily to set up kingdoms in this life, The New Testament doesn't lead into the Old Testament, but vice versa. The Old Testament of a kingdom and nation, a nation state, leads into the New Testament, a kingdom of heaven. The purpose is to prepare individuals for the kingdom which is to come. All of that being said, the Bible does speak tremendously to each of these issues, and it speaks with tremendous clarity as well. God did not stutter when he spoke. He did not leave himself unclear. So today, we're going to consider the least of these and Judgment Day. The least of these and Judgment Day. The message will be broken down into three points. The first is the return of the king. The return of the king. And the second, I believe, is the judgment of the nations. We'll see what my notes say. Oh, we're doing front and back now. The judgment of the nations. And then the third is the least of these. So the return of the king, the judgment of the nations, and the least of these. Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. 
There is a view in a relatively obscure and fairly extreme version of eschatology that believes that Jesus has already come and he's not coming back. That would be what they call full preterism. Uh, We didn't talk about that in our eschatology night because so few people actually believe that today, that it's not really uh, much of a thing. Um, But full preterism would be heresy to say that Jesus is not coming back. Um, Partial preterism is not heresy. I don't hold to it, but it's not heresy. So don't be confused if you're listening to R.C. Sproul or someone like that and they're advocating for partial preterism. That's different from full preterism. Nevertheless, the return of the king, this text makes it very clear that the return of the king described in this text is a future event. It has not happened yet, but it will happen and it is to come. Matthew teaches us on the return of the king, he says in Matthew, well, not only here in 2531, that when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Matthew 16.27, he says, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Then he will repay each person according to what he has done. His return will be a judgment. But we'll talk about the judgment in point number two. Matthew 19.28 says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, then you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Many scholars believe that this text here in Matthew 25 alludes to Daniel 7 as well. Specifically, these verses found in verse 9 through 14. Speaking of the return of the king, the return of Jesus, verse 9 says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hairs of his head were like pure wool, and his throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, And thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. We talked about those on Angelology Night. These are millions of angels standing before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. In the New Testament, when you see Jesus described as Son of God and Son of Man, the Son of Man isn't saying, oh, he's human, and the Son of God is he's divine, so he's both God and man, because the Bible says Son of God and Son of Man. Actually, both terms are referring to his deity, because the title that Jesus is the Son of Man is a reference here of Daniel 7, this apocalyptic king, the Son of Man. I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, God the Father, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages would serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, obviously, if you're really up on your eschatology and you're thinking about this from an amill perspective or a post-mill perspective or a dispensational perspective or a historic pre-mill perspective, you recognize that there's like a lot of different ways to, to kind of read this. But with the understanding that the return of Christ is a future event that has not happened yet, yes, Acts 2 makes it clear that he has been seated on a throne, but the scripture is also quite clear that the world still lies in darkness. We see that very obviously in the, the news and just in our understanding of reality. There's much demonic activity in the world today. So this dominion, this authority that was given to him in Acts 2 or Matthew 28, all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There is more dominion yet to come. There is more reign yet to come. There is more kingdom still to come than the kingdom which was begun in the ascension and the session of Christ when he's taken his place as king of heaven upon his return. He is reigning spiritually over the world, but there is a day coming where he will rule with a rod of iron. And that has not yet come. That will come when he returns physically to this earth. So we look forward to the return of the king, number one. Number two, the judgment of the nations. The judgment of the nations. When he returns, he will judge the nations. And he will judge all the nations. You see, first, point A, the expanse or the scope of the judgment. The scope of the judgment. Our text says, before him will be gathered all the nations. Every single nation will be judged. Not just Israel and the surrounding countries. Not just Europe and historically, traditionally Christian nations. Culturally Christian nations. Not just America. Not just Catholic nations where they speak of and worship Jesus by their methods. But all nations will be gathered. All nations will stand before him. So all of these like hypothetical scenarios that you encounter when you're witnessing to people and someone wants to be difficult, and they're like, oh, well, what happens to the innocent person on the deserted island who's never heard of Jesus? Well, our text today says that all nations will stand before him. This is why we do missions. This is why we tell people of Jesus. This is why we evangelize. Now, lest you be concerned if you are, if your family and tradition is from a country other than the U.S., and you're like, well, what about my ancestors? What about a thousand years ago? Did my ancestors have the gospel? We know that um, they were in, in some form worshiping Jesus in Europe in the Middle Ages, but what about like Africa or India or Asia? Well, there's good reason to believe the gospel went to each of those places in the first century. There's archaeological evidence to support this. There's linguistic evidence to support this. There's historical and church tradition to support this, like the, the Apostle Thomas went to India and other people scattered throughout the world. So you could argue, and it has commonly been argued, that when the Bible says to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, that that actually would be like America, because the gospel already went to all the rest of Africa, Asia, and Europe in the first century. 
So don't be so doubtful and burdened for your ancient ancestors from a thousand plus years ago that your faith is shaken as you think about hundreds of generations of your family members who had no hope of hearing the gospel and are therefore in hell today. They very well may be in heaven because the gospel did go forth all across Europe, Africa, and Asia in the first century. So let that be an encouragement to you, but also let it be a challenge to us, to all of us, that all the nations will be gathered before Christ on that judgment day. And so because of that, we need to be taking the gospel to all nations and telling all peoples. What this means, secondly, is that no one escapes. Some people think that they won't stand before God on the day of judgment. They think either there is no God or he doesn't judge. He's just really nice. He lets people in. He sweeps it under the rug. He says, okay, well, I'm just a really nice guy. That's not how this works. God is a God of justice and a God of judgment. And this expanse of this judgment means that no one escapes. All the nations will stand before him. Secondly, second major subpoint under the scope of the judgment is the certainty of the judgment. Not only will all the nations be gathered before him, but all the nations will be gathered before him. This is a certainty. It's not up for debate. Even though it's up for debate in almost every seminary in the country. Literally, almost every seminary in the country has professors standing before um, young men, and in some cases women, who are training to be pastors and ministers and preachers, and they stand up and tell them, hey, this isn't actually how it is. And so we don't really need to be worried about gospel proclamation because Judgment Day isn't, isn't real. Look at Zechariah 14, verses 1 through 5, if you have it handy. Zechariah 14, 1 through 5. It says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be taken and the house plundered and women raped. Half the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other southward. And you shall flee to the, to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azale. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. It's helpful as you're reading the prophets, minor prophets, major prophets, wherever, that you understand the near-far view concept, near-far view. So what that means is in the major and minor prophets, whoever's writing, whether it be Zechariah or Isaiah or Ezekiel or whoever, they often see visions. Well, the, these are visions. So they're seeing their visions, and what they're seeing looks like a mountain range. And in that mountain range, there's a bunch of mountains, and the distance between those mountains isn't super clear. And so you will have prophecies concerning the first coming of Christ, his 
birth, his humanity, his incarnation, his ministry. But you will also often see prophecies concerning his return, his second coming. And you'll see them all mixed together like a set of mountains that you, you just see a mountain range, but you're not really certain how far away some of these are or the distance between them. I believe that's in part what's happening here in Zechariah 14 because it does seem that there may be something happening in this text that was potentially fulfilled in the first century. But it's also very clear that this entire passage wasn't fulfilled in the first century. Jesus didn't stand on the Mount of Olives and split it in two and all of his holy ones coming with him and judging the nations and having people flee away. The end of the world did not come in 70 AD. We're still here today. There's much evil and wickedness that we're seeing. If you're in the Minor Prophets, you can flip over to Joel 3. Joel 3, verse 1 through 12 says, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people. They've traded a boy for a prostitute and they've sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? Are you paying me back? I will return your payment on your own head swift and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from your own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah. And they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to the nations far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords. You're familiar with the beating your swords into plowshares, but he's telling them, make weapons out of tools. And your pruning hooks... Turn them into spears. You know what a pruning hook is? Imagine like a rake. You've got a long handle and it has a hook on the end. So you want to bend that up and make it into a spear. It'd be something that you could have grabbed like oranges or apples off a tree from, but now turning that grabber into a spear to stab people. Let even the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. You see that language again in Revelation. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion. 
and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So if you, like me, are historic pre-mill and you're not expecting to get rescued or raptured away, which I'm praying I'm wrong, especially as the world gets worse and worse, I pray that Jesus would return in the next five seconds and we just don't have to deal with all the problems that are being created. But if you don't hold to that and you think we're kind of in here for, for at least the next seven years because there's no peace treaty being signed in Israel right now, the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. You see, the text goes on, our text in Matthew 25. The judgment of the nations before him, verse 32, before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. That is the, the ultimate judgment is sheep go here, Goats go here. They have their different destinations. They have their different natures. They're different shepherds. They're different ones that they follow and leaders that they're under. There is a division. It's difficult for me to, to talk to Mark about our church without him saying how, like, in this church, things are very cut and dry. There's this way, there's the line, and it's this side against this side. And we're not gray, we're black and white. We say there's sheep and goats. Well, that comes from the Bible. The Bible says there's good and evil, there's sheep and goats, there's God and Satan, all sorts of dichotomies throughout the Bible. There is a judgment day, and all people will stand before God, all nations will stand before God, and they all will be judged, and they all are going to go into one of two groups. You're either a sheep or you're a goat. So I'd ask you to consider right now, which one are you? If Jesus returned right now, or if you dropped over from a heart attack right now, which side are you? Are you on? Are you a sheep or are you a goat? We see throughout scripture this image of sheep and goats. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I follow him. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You see in John 10 that Jesus is the good shepherd. He knows his sheep and his sheep follow him. We see that goats are not like that. They don't know the shepherd. The shepherd doesn't know them. This is this ancient imagery. I'm told, I've never been to a sheep farm or seen one or been around shepherds, but I'm told that when shepherds would come into Israel, there were a lot of like pens basically outside the city. They would drop their sheep off there and go in to do their business, their work or whatever they need to do, trading and stuff. And then they would come back out and there's this giant field with a fence around it and, and multiple um flocks of sheep all mixed together. And the shepherd could just call his sheep with whatever word he would say. And then out of that very large group, all mixed together, the sheep that were his would hear his call, perk up their heads, 
and start following him. They would start walking, being called out of the vast multitude, the greater number. His own sheep would follow him because he's their shepherd, they're his sheep. They know him, he knows them. And that's just how it works. I would love to see that in person someday because it sounds amazing. It sounds super cool, especially thinking about it theologically. But that is the nature of the shepherd-sheep relationship is that they know each other. So I want to ask you, do you know the good shepherd? Does he know you? Do you have a genuine relationship with him? I'm not asking if your parents know him. I'm not asking if your grandparents know him or if you were raised in a Christian culture, a Christian church. But do you know the shepherd? Does he know you? Do you know his voice? When other shepherds come through and they're... they're, calling out with their own messages, can you tell the difference between their call when they say, follow me, and they're calling you into the way of the world? Can you tell the difference? Do you know when the the good shepherd calls? When you're scrolling on social media, can you tell the difference between the good shepherd's call when a famous person preacher pops up and one of your friends shares it on Instagram and some kind of story and you click on it to hear what this guy is saying, can you tell if this is a true shepherd or a false shepherd? Can you hear the good shepherd's voice in the voice of that preacher? Or can you tell when he is a false teacher? Do you know the shepherd? Verse 34 continues, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. If you outline this text, which I would encourage you in your studying of scripture, you can find lots of websites where the biblical scriptures are available. So you can copy and paste it into a Word document and then create an outline of that to see the main themes and all. As you do that and you look at this text, you'll see that these two are totally parallel to each other. And if you color code them and you say, okay, well, what's the first part? The first part is, uh, then the king will say to those on his 
right. Well, verse 41 says, then he will say to those on his left. Verse 34, come, you who are blessed by my father. On the other side, depart from me, or on this side, depart from me, you cursed. Those here, are in, they inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Those on the left are cast into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This whole, the whole next sections, they're all completely parallel to each other. So these are true opposites. And that is the idea that is being communicated here. The question, though, that is raised is who is he speaking to in verse 40? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers, you did it to me. So not who's he speaking to, but who's he speaking of? He's just speaking to the nations. Remember that from at the beginning. This whole thing, this whole scenario involves him, Christ the king, having returned, and now he's judging the nations, and so he's going to speak to the nations, and out of those nations, he's addressing, in verse 40, those on his right. I believe, if I'm not confusing myself with all these numbers. He's speaking to those on his right. The question is, how did those nations receive the gospel? How did the nations receive the gospel? Those who receive the gospel and the gospel's messengers are the ones who he says, enter into the joy of your master. Those who reject the messengers of the gospel, those are the ones who he says, depart from me a curse into everlasting flames. What's, what's happening here? We're in Matthew 25. We're about to get to chapter 28. We're about to get to this great commission. And this is what's about to happen. They're about to send them out, not just the 70, but the 12 are going to go out, and then they're going to make disciples who make disciples. This message is going to be spread across the world. And those who receive the gospel messengers, those are the ones who receive Jesus, and the ones who reject it and say, get out of town, get out of my house, get out of my face. I don't want your message. I want nothing to do with this. Those are the ones who reject Christ. So we are here for point three, the least of these. I'm about to go on an extended, several pages of of reading quotes from sort of the, the research part of this, part of this message. So my point up front, the least of these The least of these are the gospel messengers who are sent out to preach the gospel of Jesus the King. They're proclaiming the message that Christ has come into the world, and in in that moment, his death is still future. But for us, it's in the past. He has already died. So the message of the kingdom of the gospel is that Christ came into the world, he lived a sinless life, and he died a substitutionary death. Then on the third day, he was raised. He came out of the dead, out of the grave, and then he ascended into heaven on the 40th day after that, where he sits today waiting for his return, patiently waiting for the full number of his elect to be gathered in. 
And so we are commanded to make ready. We are commanded to share this message that Christ died for sinners and you need to repent of your sins and trust in him. And if you don't do it, you're not going to be ready on judgment day. So these gospel messengers were sent into the world preaching that very message just three short chapters later, Matthew 28. So the least of these are the gospel messengers who are sent out to preach the gospel of Jesus the King And your reception of them indicates your reception of the gospel. Your reception of them indicates your reception of Christ himself. And you see that theme throughout the book of Acts, for example. People who receive the gospel messengers, a.k.a. the church, the local church, the ones who are in right relationship to the church are the ones who are in right relationship to Jesus. And those who, uh, Ananias and Sapphira, for example, they come in, they lie to the church, and the Bible says that they were lying to God himself. And Peter calls them out on this, and they're struck dead. So, our main verse, the theme verse for this whole message, Matthew 25, 40, And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. This passage is a favorite of theological liberals. For on the surface level, It would suggest that the Christian life revolves around running soup kitchens and that eternal life is granted on the basis of humanitarian aid. If this is true, then we must devote all of our efforts to this very thing, to eradicating poverty, to feeding the poor, and other forms of mercy, or if you want to call it justice, ministry. If all of this is true, then pastors are not needed for churches, and churches need community organizers rather than preachers. Churches would not need room for gathering and assembling to hear the preached word. We don't need pews or chairs or hymnals or any of those sorts of things. But rather, the church should actually shift to be an NGO and would need staff nurses, dietitians, social workers, personal trainers, because heart disease, you know, life coaches, and psychologists. It is very interesting that the scholar Craig Blomberg supports this view in his commentary, but he doesn't support it directly. Now, Craig Blomberg is kind of the most famous theologian at Denver Seminary, which is a very prominent seminary. And he wrote for the NAC commentary, which is published by the um, Southern Baptist commentary series published by Broadman and Holman. So this is like the official commentary of the SBC, which is like the base package in Logos. So if you buy the Logos Bible software, you're going to get the NAC commentary set. And this is kind of the official word from America's largest Protestant denomination, even though Craig Blomberg is not in that denomination. He says... The minority view, the minority interpretation of this verse throughout church history, which is probably the majority view today, listen, this is key, especially in churches with a healthy social ethic. This view is that these brothers are the needy people, the needy people in this world. My comment, it is interesting and quite picturesque of the state of evangelicalism that he makes that statement 
in the same paragraph where he says the following statement. So what you're about to hear is some double talk. Quote, Here is a major interpretive crux. Who are these brothers? The majority view throughout church history has taken them to be some or all of Christ's disciples, since the word least is the superlative form of the adjective little ones, little, which, without exception in the book of Matthew, always refers to disciples. While brothers in this gospel, and usually in the New Testament, when not referring to literal biological siblings, always means spiritual kin. And then he provides a whole bunch of references, Matthew 5, 22 through 24, and Matthew 5, 47, Matthew 7, 3 through 5, Matthew 12, 48 through 50, Matthew 18, 15, uh, it's twice there, uh, also in verse 21 of that same chapter, and verse 35, then in Matthew 23, 8, and 28, 10. There may be a theological sense in which all humans are brothers and God's children, though not all are redeemed, but nothing of that appears here or with this terminology elsewhere in Matthew. So he's saying like that, that, that idea may be true. It's not found in the book of Matthew. So what you see here is that he's observing on exegetical grounds, biblical scholarship grounds, based on word usage and cross-references, that this text refers to despised Christians. The least of these, my brothers. These are the Christians who are preaching the gospel and being despised and run out of town. But based on its current popularity in churches, he calls this a healthy social ethic. So the misinterpretation of this text is the healthy way. And you wonder why it's hard to find a good church. At face value, the social ethic interpretation is creating another law, devoid of gospel. And it is chaining an impossible burden around the necks of true Christians that would utterly ruin them if they applied it literally. Because that's how the law is. The law is a literal true thing, and it doesn't bend. You can't just say, oh, yeah, but I've got these excuses, so it's fine. That's not how the law works. The law shows us our sin and it condemns us. It says guilty. So back in, the, in, in our verses here where he's like, um, did you visit me while I was in prison? Do you have any idea how many prisoners there are in America? Raise your hand if you have ever been to jail to visit someone. Okay, so like a quarter of the room? Bad news for the rest of you. You're going to hell. Just kidding. But if you take that interpretive approach, the text says what it says. And if what it says, if that means that you all have to visit every person in jail, and that's just one line. I mean, there's also like the food aspect and the clothing aspect and all the other things too. And I'm talking about you As an individual, I'm not talking about like, oh yeah, but three people in my church do it once a month. Because you're not judged on that basis. You don't go to heaven or hell because you have a, your name is in Andy's notebook membership card or membership list. Like that's not the basis. 
The basis is you individually. Where do you stand with God? His comments, I believe, uh, yeah, Blomberg's comments continue, quote, yet while there is ample teaching in many parts of scripture on the need to help all the poor in this world, most notably Amos, Micah, Luke, and James, it is highly unlikely that this is Jesus's point. So he starts off by saying like, oh yeah, the health, the, the social ethic is the healthy way, but it, then he goes on to say that's not what he's talking about. Rather, his thought will closely parallel that of Matthew 10.42, which I don't know if I put that in my footnotes. At some, yeah, I've got that on the next page. The sheep are people whose works demonstrate that they have responded properly to Christ's messengers and therefore to his message, however humble the situation or actions of those involved. Close quote. So, you observe him affirming the conservative position on exegetical grounds while making it clear that the social justice view is the closest to his heart. That that's the right social ethic. It's kind of like this idea of like, it might not be factually true, but it's morally true. Keener, Craig Keener, has a similar take on it. Quote, nor is the popular view that this text refers to the treatment of the poor or those in need exegetically compelling. He's saying that it's not exegetically compelling, even though it's popular. Although on other grounds, it would be entirely consonant with the Jesus tradition. The Jesus tradition, isn't that just wonderful language that inspires confidence in this biblical scholar? He's calling the, the Bible the Jesus tradition and biblical ethics as a whole. Uh, This is consistent with the Jesus tradition and biblical ethics as a whole. In the context of Jesus' teaching, especially in the context of Matthew as opposed to Luke, this parable addresses not serving all the poor, but receiving the gospel messengers. Elsewhere in Matthew, disciples are called Jesus' brothers. And then um, the same references that I quoted earlier. Close quote. These words from R.T. France, another scholar, are helpful. It seems, quote, therefore inappropriate to relate the least of these here to a specific group. It is in any brother of Jesus, however, however insignificant that Jesus himself is served. And it is that service which is therefore the criterion of judgment, as it indicates how one responds to Jesus himself. It is important to note that in each of the passages which refer to these little ones, The point is to declare the importance of such people because of their identification with Jesus. It is the nearest that Matthew or the synoptic tradition generally come to the conception of the church as the body of Christ. Close quote. That scholar, France, helpfully concludes his comments on this passage by drawing the points together to center on the church. Let me just ask you, do you love the local church? Like the actual people, brothers and sisters in Christ, born again, committed to the body of Christ. Would you do anything that was needed to help them? When I was in seminary, there, I was in a class and in my church. Uh, my church was heavily a seminary church. Like we, we had 500 members and 200 of them were students. Um, the president of the seminary was a member of, he was my Sunday school teacher. Um, we had several faculty who were members and it was, it was a very like prominent church in that circle. 
So it was very common to sit in your class and look over and see a fellow church member who's in the same class with you. So in one class I was in, one of my uh, classmates said, uh, hey guys, is anybody heading out west after class, like on whatever highway? I, I need to go pick up my car from the mechanic shop. And I was wondering if anybody could give me a ride. Look around the class and I was like, no, I live the opposite direction. And somebody goes, well, how far is it? He's like, about 40 minutes. And one of the other guys in the class said, I'll, I'll help you. I'll drive you. We're members of the same church. I'll, 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 t- I'll take you. Oh, but are you going that way? No, it's, it's fine. I'll drive you. Because we're, we have a membership covenant that says that we're, we're promising and we're standing up together once a month as we take communion and whatnot. We're promising to care for each other, to help each other. And that means something. And if it doesn't mean giving your church member a ride, then what does it mean? This text here is a good reminder to prioritize the care for the local church. And it's a reminder that prioritizing a care for the local church will result in the greatest possible care for the world. It is the same as the principle for that the individual who cares for himself before caring for others is better off. See, you think about the oxygen mask on an airplane. At first glance, it seems selfish. But there's a reason they tell you to put your oxygen mask on first. Because if you don't do that, you're going to die, and you're not going to be able to help anybody else. It may seem selfish in our simplistic way of thinking, but the Bible actually contains numerous appeals to our own rational self-interest and affirms it as one of many right motivations. Even the passage, even passages which are classically used to affirm an opposing position support this idea. See Philippians 2, which says that Christ's ultimate purpose in his humiliation was his later exaltation. Why did he give up all this stuff? Why? Because there's glory at the end. He's not doing it for glory now. He's doing it for glory later. The Bible's packed full of this type of language saying, hey, you're going to get rewards in heaven and that's actually right and good and it's not wrong to think that way. The best way for the church to love the unbelieving community around it is to be a healthy, strong, and biblical church that faithfully preaches the word of God and cares for its own members, including calling them to faithful obedience to Christ through all of the means of grace. It's interesting that this passage is also a favorite of liberation theologians, which became a favorite text of broader evangelicals and then even trickled its way into conservative reformed evangelicals. You'll find the social interpretation on all kinds of websites and sermon download websites. But let me assure you that liberation theology is no friend of the poor, marginalized, or the oppressed. However you want to define those terms, it's not a friend of those people. When you hear a preacher use the words poor, marginalized, and oppressed, these are buzzwords that you should pay careful attention and listen up because you're probably listening to a Marxist. 
But liberation theology has a variety of prominent figures. Some names include Gustavo Gutierrez, one of the founders of the movement, and more recently, James Cohn, who was a theology professor here in New York City. He just died like nine years ago. So there's a lot of churches and a lot of pastors in New York City who studied under this guy. Before he went woke, Anthony Bradley was one of the most outspoken critics of this very theology, the theology that undergirds that movement. Some of his more prominent interviews, he used to rip this stuff all the time in very famous interviews, but those interviews have since been deleted. However, copies of the transcripts of articles that were written based on those interviews are still available, including the one listed in the footnotes. I said that for my professor. The reality is that the Bible calls us to love and to care for people, all people, regardless of their status as Christians. But the scripture is also clear that the local church is the greatest priority for the believers. Nevertheless, an obligation remains for the average believer to love and to help those in need around him. This has been the church's interpretation and tradition from the very beginning to the present. Men like Charles Spurgeon and George Mueller are famous in part or in whole, like George Whitfield, for their ministries to the poor and the destitute. While I have critiqued the social emphasis of evangelicals with this text, the reality is that Christians are called to help the poor, though it is not the point of this text. This teaching must be balanced out by wisdom, that requires a deep knowledge of the specific situations that you will encounter and a deep knowledge of the local realities. Some are poor due to no fault of their own. They are perhaps displaced by war or famine. They may be afflicted by disease or chronic illness. Perhaps they're an orphan. Perhaps they're left behind by the death of parents due to any of the above reasons. Perhaps they're in Afghanistan and their parents got on the airplane and left them sitting on the street. These types of things would have been the dominant scenarios in biblical times. People who were kind of victims of their environment, like children who were born with a terrible deformity. But that's not the situation here in the U.S., The cities of the U.S. are filled with thousands and thousands of destitute people who are impoverished due to a long series of events and decisions, many of which involve choices of flagrant sin. Proverbs 13, 15 is helpful here. It says, good understanding gives favor. By the way, there's a reason we've spent 25 weeks reading Proverbs. We're up to Proverbs 25 now. Because we need to know wisdom, and that's the purpose of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 13.15 says, Good understanding gives favor, but the way of transgressors is hard. This verse precisely summarizes the scenario that we most often observe in the U.S. Someone said that if the prodigal son lived in the United States, we would have given him a sandwich and a room to sleep in, and he would have never come home. Often, in our local context here in New York, those who are in desperate situations need to first repent. 
And then they need to turn to the path that God has prescribed for them in his word. That may, for example, be a young person who needs to be restored to a family that kicked them out due to their continuous rebellion against house rules. Or a spouse who kicks out the other spouse for adultery or for wasting money or for refusal to get a job or not providing to feed for the children. That person who you may encounter on the street, who that's their sob story, they are not a victim. They are not the oppressed. They are the oppressor. And their family's the victim. And they need to repent. Our modern scenarios in here in the U.S., I'm not talking about Afghanistan right now. I'm not talking about war-torn areas where there's all kinds of horrible things happening. I'm talking about New York City. Our modern scenarios are rarely that of a righteous sufferer like Job. Rarely. I'm not saying it will never happen. But I'm saying most of those guys in jail are not innocent. They were not framed. They will tell you that. But that's not true. Yet regardless of the type of suffering that we encounter, we should always act in a way that is consistent with biblical love. When a college or a seminary friend loses their spouse in a fatal car accident, we should generously donate to help them. When someone in the church needs money, we should try to help them get a job. When a homeless mom comes into the church asking for a handout, we should seek to help her transform her worldview through the word of God and connect her to one of the many, many shelters and agencies that exist exclusively for that purpose. We must keep in mind that when a person refuses these types of programs and just wants money, it's for a reason. The various agencies in our city that do the best work have specific requirements of the clients that need their help. Residential programs may require daily chapel messages, morning and evening curfews. Like, you have to get up in the morning and go outside and look for a job. And then you come back and you have to be in bed by a certain time with lights out and all this stuff. It's very rigid. It's very structured. But people in these scenarios need that. They have policies like applying for a certain number of jobs per day or per week. They'll have frequent drug testing and other measures. Frequently, the, quote, least of these are people who prey upon naive Christians. And they are well aware of all of those requirements at all of those locations. But they know that churches don't think carefully about these issues, especially in New York City, so they'll just go knocking on doors of churches on Sunday morning and give some sob story. And if the preacher won't listen to them, then they'll go after the organist and try and get her to feel sorry for them and open up her wallet and then just give them some money. People who prey on Christians like this are not interested in transformation. They just want a quick hit. So they will make an oddly specific request. I say this as a person who ran a food pantry for two years. Like I know what I'm talking about. They will make an oddly specific request that cannot be easily fulfilled in order to get you to give up and just hand them cash. Say, for example, I've, I saw this one recently. Hey, I'm hungry. You're like, oh, okay. are you hungry? Okay, um, well, there's... There's some food right there, like a hot dog truck or a restaurant or whatever. And they say, no, 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 I want you to buy me Chinese food. 
They'll say that while standing literally five feet away from a pretzel truck and 10 feet away from a Taco Bell. And then you say, well, how about a pretzel? And then they say, no, 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 I want Chinese. And you're like, well, where's the Chinese place? Oh, it's a few blocks down. And you're like, I'm going the other way. Like, and you find yourself in this situation that you did not have time for. You got places to go. And this person is telling you they are very hungry, but they only want Chinese food. The purpose of that is to get you to open up your wallet and say, here, just, and just to take the money. So then you'll feel good about yourself. You'll feel the peace of mind. You won't feel guilty anymore. And then they walk off and do it to the next person that walks past them. Now, if you're sitting there saying, Andy, you sound really cynical. While we might start out our ministries with endless enthusiasm and idealism about changing the world and saving all the, fixing all the problems in the world, we must not let cynical realism steal our joy from countless times of being lied to or stolen from or betrayed. Instead, we should direct our efforts towards loving and caring for the local church. And we will, in time, receive a great reward for our labors, which will be, in major part, the people under our care. That's actually the reward of seeing the transformed life of the person in front of you. It is a blessed thing to give to those we love. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I pray that you would help us to think clearly, to think rightly about all of these matters, to rightly understand and interpret your word, to rightly apply it, and to live faithfully, not as angry, cynical Christians who won't help anybody with any problems, but walking as wise men and women, not walking as fools, and that we would seek to help other people also become wise according to your word, which is by the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. I pray that you would help us in all of these things to rightly apply them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.